If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Baggett Street and what I was like to know. He was a queer one, full of little Ido. He was a queer one, and I'll tell you. Hello and welcome to If Ever You Go, a Northside Dublin Perspective. My name is Pat Lynch and I hope you will join me as we journey through the Dublin One City One Book selection for 2014 entitled If Ever You Go, a Map of Dublin in Poetry and Song. In this programme we continue our literary journey of Northside Dublin, this time in the areas of Dublin 5 and 13 and focusing on Artane, Hote and Lambay Island. The poems featured in this programme are The Bailey Lighthouse by Dermot Bulger, Hocature by Catherine Duffy, You've Been This Way Before by Enda Coyle Green, and now we begin with Dermot Bulger, who reads and discusses his poem, Starless Sequence. Shadows whisper a new language of possibilities, from hidden couples reminding us we are not alone in searching for romance and the kinship encountered while dancing to the secret rhythm of our peers, through steel shutters clapped across windows. Rock music invents a vocabulary that unites us. Strobe lights on the ceiling break up the air until the brain keeps pace with the body's theatricality in this slow, fragmented, black-and-white movie. Every Friday, you would dance away the hours and gathering tempo until the harsh glare of bulbs evicted you from a space that felt briefly yours. Trust out into the night, you doss or go home among couples and groups of girls singing of love. But tomorrow you will wander incubator estates and stare disbelieving in the brutality of dawn at silent families maintaining vigils and doorways with only numb anger left burning inside them. 2. Last night in swirling colour we danced again, and as strobe lights spun in black and white, I reached in this agony of slow motion for you, but you danced on as if cold light still shone, merging into the crowd as my path was blocked by snarling bouncers and dead-eyed club owners. When I screamed across the music nobody heard, I flailed on the spotlights like a disco dancer and people formed a circle clapping to the beat as I shuddered around the club in a violent fit, hurtling to a dream without trembling awake. I revolved through space until I hit the ground, lying among their feet, tramping out the tunes. I grasped you inside my mind for this moment, your white dress bobbing in a cool candle flame, illuminating the darkness spinning towards me, a teenage dancing queen, proud of her footwork, sparks rising like stardust all over the floor. 3. We are here, along the edge of people's memories, a reference point in the calendar of their lives. Our absences linked with acceptances or refusals on summer evenings when love seemed attainable and moist lips opened after dances in the parks. We 
at the unavoidable stillbirth of your past. The golden girl you loved, pregnant at seventeen. Young friends growing sour, paralysed by the dole. Your senile boss, already rotting inside his skin, returns the look of hatred that's burning you up, drawing new breath from every young life wrecked. All those smooth men who would quietly forget us, who turn you on a spit over cold flames of the scent, are guilty of murder, as if they chained the exits when we stampeded through their illusion of order. We have buried in your skull these ashes of doubt, and you believe in nothing but one slow fuse of anger since the night your tin candle of youth ran out. Dermot, thanks. What a powerful poem about a very painful event in the, in the local area here, and I suppose anybody of a certain age will remember that night um, and, and the next day. What was your own starting point with the poem, David? I, I, I would imagine maybe people give things time, they reflect on it, it sinks in, or did you feel an initial response, an immediate response? It was an immediate response. I can't remember how long after the Stardust disaster uh, I wrote the poem. It was in the same year. Uh, I, but I remember I, I was in the Stardust once or twice. I wasn't there that night. Um, I had a friend who was going to go there and didn't go there that night, so I didn't directly know anybody uh, until much later um, connected to it. Uh, But at the same time, it was a place where you would have been. It was a place where people you knew would have been. And it felt like your tragedy. It felt like a tragedy owned by the city. I was walking in the mobile libraries. I remember getting up the next morning and I was walking in, um, I think it was Lucan. And every body who came in the van in the first half hour was discussing it. Mm. And everybody who came in the van for the rest of the day were utterly silent. Mm. And it was that thing of sinking in the forced, almost giddy, uh, not excitement, but sort of frenzy of, of news. And then as it sank in, pure, purely what had happened, this is in the immediate aftermath, mm-hmm. that absolute silence that people just were sucked into. Of There was nothing to say. Mm-hmm. And out of that silence, I tried to shape that poem. And then, obviously, you had that immediate shock and numbness. And then you had that slow fuse of anger that the poem uh, explodes as inquiries happened and inquiries were unsatisfactory. And, 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 and as other things that we won't go into here accord. Uh, so the poem, it, it was sort of began on that day almost in that silence, but it, it was probably a year in the making. Yeah, because it, it, there, there's very much a sense of, I mean, there's three different parts of it and it's, it's almost like, different structures telling the stories from different perspectives different time frames even the the last section deals is the last, last yeah. section is the voices of, of, of those people who, who are still whispering on the edge of people's memories yes. uh, then there's still a reference point in the calendar of, of the lives of obviously and I, I cannot speak for any of these people any of these families anything I don't claim in any way whatsoever but even for, for, from the, the lives of anybody of my generation uh, that was a moment when we understood mortality because people died who were our age and people died in a place where we would have been. Yeah. And we continue now with Dermot Bulger who reads his second poem, The Bailey Lighthouse. At times I still dream about the watch room, assailed by a spume of waves on every side, 
with one and a quarter million candelabras of power, every 15 seconds flashing white, 41 metres above the mean spring tide, yielding 14 and a quarter seconds of darkness, punctuated by a three-quarter second splurge of light. During each flash, the missing part of me is revealed, still hunched there, typing with slow finger strokes over the incessant crackle from the shortwave radio, the part of me that reality could never quite reclaim, absolved in some novel with my back to the window, alone with phantoms who keep haunting my brain, protected by seabirds and seals on the rocks below. Thank you, Dermot. That was the Bailey Lighthouse there, read by Dermot Bulger. Um, Dermot, there's a mix there of two things. What comes across is very strongly a sense of location, but also the creative process. What's your relationship with the, the Bailey Lighthouse? Well, uh, as a writer who lives in a very small house, with, 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 well, I had two small children back <laughs> then, I needed to find a space to write. And uh, every novel I wrote was written in a different room. Um, and I wrote two novels on the watchroom of the Bailey Lighthouse. And it was an extraordinary experience to be there. And I always feel that some part of the room comes into the novel and that you leave some part of you behind. And so writers have different lives. There's, mm. there's, there's your, writer at home, your life at home when you're washing dishes and you're playing with the kids and you're doing all those things and you're shopping. And then there's this other world that nobody ever sees when you're sitting in, in a room and it could be in the Bailey Lighthouse or it could be sort of in all the very strange places I've written over the years, secret locations where I go. And I always feel there's another part of me there, that vulnerable person fighting these battles with the English language and you never win the war but just occasionally on some day in the watch room or the Bailey Lighthouse or somewhere else you win a skirmish yeah. and you come out with a thousand words and it's about that, 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 that other side of writing nobody sees where you have to, you have to lock yourself away and so it is a, it's about the place where it's doing it but, it, but, but there's a su- succession of rooms, I've written that poem uh, badly uh, and not published it about many other rooms as well <laughs> And uh, the idea that um, just uh, that I suppose it sounds very idyllic to anybody who, who thinks they know what writers do. The idea that maybe you could be somewhere almost amongst the elements, you know, it, it must be very freeing when you're trying to clear your head of maybe everything else. What I liked about the Bailey was um, there was a sense of walk around it. And my father was a sailor, <coughs> lived on ships all his life and it's very nautical out there. So there was a whole sense of, of being familiar with, with that sort of world. And you had the shortwave radio coming in and the kish light coming in and all these signals and you could hear sailors at sea. So there was a sense of, but, but it wasn't high art. It wasn't, yeah. there was a sense of being in a workplace, but it wasn't like being an animal character where you're surrounded by artists and poets. You were, you know, what, the vice that came into that watch room were people out on the port and everything else and there was a sense of spruceness and a sense of that this was a place where work was done because lighthouses are not luxurious places and, yeah. and they're spick and span and so I, I found that the discipline of going of exactly a 10 mile drive from the Condor the discipline of going there a, a, every year was great I, fi- I promised myself I finished the novel I was writing by Christmas Eve it was called The Valparaiso Voyage and on Christmas Eve I killed five people in the last eight pages of the Valparaiso 
our face for fire just so that I could get home for Christmas. <laughs> well, so, so as you say, when you think of the Bailey Lighthouse now, you think of a different novel. <laughs> I think I, th- I think of a different novel. And then there's all kinds of rooms as, as you go along the city. And you say, well, that's where I wrote that novel. That's where I wrote that novel. Oh, come listen to me story. It's about a nice young man. When the militia wasn't wanting, he dealt in hawk and twang. Oh, he loved a lovely maiden, as fair as any old midge. And she owned at a trachle dare bow, one side of the Carlisle Bridge. Well, another one came a courting her, and his name was Mickey Bags. He was a commercial traveller, and he dealt in bones and rags. Oh, he took her down to Sandy Mount, for to hear the waters rowl, and he stole the heart of the twangman's mutt, playing Billy in the bowl. Oh, when the twangman heard of this, he flew into a terrible rage, and he swore be the contents of his twangcart, on him he get revenge. So he stood in waiting at James's gate till the poor old bags came up and with his twang knife sure he took the life of the poor old gather him up. Now that's the end of my story and I hope you'll be good men and not go courting a twangman's mutt or any other old hen for she'll leave you without a brass farden not even your old sack of rags. And that's the end of my story and poor old Mickey Bags. That was The Twang Man, sung by Stephen Heffernan. Next, we hear from Captain Duffy, who reads her poem, O Couture. On Hoth Head, the sky is my big blue hat, still bright around the rim, although the world begins to dress down for evening. An early moon's a jewel in the navel of a muddy puddle, Birds fly low, mocking a distant jet with their easy, unfueled aeroplane chic. Old's the new new, I'm told, so my hat's the latest thing, attached to my shoulders by tall, avant-garde invisible poles. The promontory itself gives me height more striking than any platform shoe. I wobble slightly with the joy of walking here. My hat quivers imperceptibly. Catherine, this strikes me as one of those poems that celebratory. It's taking a particular moment in time that was special to you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite a happy, easy little poem. It came to me easily as well. Uh, I I was always very fond of Holt because I used to work in the library there in, uh, believe it or not, nineteen eighty six. So it was very much a little village. You know, yeah. just really enjoyed the kind of lifestyle there, if you like. And uh, I often visit. So um, one evening, this was uh, one evening, uh, there was an early moon, summer evening, and I just noticed the moon in the puddle mm. and that line of the the moon's a jewel in the navel of a muddy puddle. That was the first piece of the poem that came to me. And then it flowed really easily after that, which isn't all that usual, but it's great when it happens. And, and lovely use of metaphor, kind of describing the sun almost like a hat and yeah, yeah and actually to be honest with you I didn't plan the pun you know of mm. Holt Head and then the sky is a hat it, it sort of came to me I literally was thinking of the sky as a big blue bonnet yes. kind of ha- arching up above me you know so yeah. it was just a lovely scene 
it's a really beautiful place, obviously. And a particularly um, nice day as well. the obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so, 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 as you say, one line came first, but that's interesting that you say that the, the line you discussed there is not necessarily the opening line. It, it, it took a bit of yeah. time to structure it. I yeah. sort of built around it, you know. I keep a diary a lot too, so I would have gone back and had a look at what I wrote about that evening. But that, that line jumped out and then... Uh, as I say, just built it up around that. Yeah, yeah, and, and a real lovely sense too. I mean, the weather plays a big part, obviously, in it. But yeah, that, yeah. that oneness with the moment and with the day. Yeah, yeah, it's just those little moments. I kind of, I think they call them peak experiences or whatever. You know, the wobbling with joy. Nearly, uh, you know, it doesn't happen us very often, but um, when it does, it often yeah. produces a poem. So, yeah. yeah. And in terms of having written about Houghton that way, would you be tempted to? write about it at a different time or a different... Yeah, I, that's an interesting idea, actually. I, I'd certainly like to maybe go back because that's, you know, I think, I'd say probably the germ of that poem happened around about the 90s. Mm. And even then I was looking back to my old experience of working in the library in the 80s. So maybe later on in the 2000s, I'll, I'll, I'll get to do another take, you know, yes, go back yeah. and see how things feel and, and how it looks. Yeah, yeah and, and it, as you say, that, that opening line that... The, 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 that you mentioned did that give you the idea then well you know even going back to the title of the poem that we're going to dress this poem up in different ways everything will be a different yeah, yeah you know the, the the picture of the kind of the jewel in the navel and then it just sort of that makes you think of a kind of maybe an eastern type of you know costume and I don't know it's just the, the metaphor of fashion and haute yeah. couture and that just came you know, it was very inspired. Sometimes, you know, I have a poem and I, I have an idea I want to embody and I work really hard at it and it's a kind of a, a grind and often it doesn't turn out as well as something that just flows and, you know, yeah. comes easily, you know. So. <gasps> it was also accepted very quickly. It was published, I remember, in um, Poetry Ireland and I think I had sent it with some a couple of other poems that I thought were really weighty and mm. important. And I thought, oh, I hope they get picked. And I put that one in nearly as a little filler. <laughs> and, you know, that often happens to me that the editor might pick the poem I would l- least expect. Yes. And then uh, subsequently I got very fond of it as a poem, obviously. You know, it's yes, yes. sort of you, you get a lot more fond of poems once they're published. Absolutely. You know, you sort of have <laughs> that ratification about them. So Yeah, it's an, an endorsement, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And have you had much response to the poem from... Readers? Well, actually, after, after it was published in Poetry Ireland, it was chosen for a, a website called Poetry Daily. And they used to take a particular... I think they're still on the go, actually. But they used to choose a particular magazine and then they would pick a poem to feature mm-hmm. featuring the, the magazine and the poem and it was chosen for that so it was up up on the Poetry Daily website as well so that was nice and the editor there had some nice words to say about it good, good. and would it be typical of the type of poem you write would you be drawn to place or yeah I yeah. think I am I think I am a lot landscape and I think I'm quite a visual poet you know it, when I see a beautiful scene that you know or even an ugly scene you know but mm. it's it's visual um, experience often sparks poetry for me. We asked some members of the public if they could recite some poems they might know. Yeah, would you like to recite any of the poetry you know? <laughs> I would, but I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I will arise and go now and go to Inishree, a small cabin built there of clay and what it's made. That's about Sligo and it's um, one of my favourite. I can't remember. <laughs> I haven't got a good memory. The Song of the Wandering Angus, the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. <laughs> and that's it, I'm afraid. Enda Coyle-Green reads her poem, You've Been This Way Before. You've Been This Way Before. 
The road curves. The moon swerves, staring in your windscreen, open-mouthed. You check your mirror. See the city's lights transposed. In the air, a plane tamps wary circles. Kites in as another turns its nose up, skimming streaks of light, piercing clouds. You focus on the white line, broken where the road slopes up in shallow turns. The sky falls nearer as you slip the steering wheel between your fingers, past the metal skeleton of half-built barn. Halfway up the hill, fields ripple, trees lean over. Dark blue water laps the sleeping Viking hump of Lambay. At the top, lights stop. Nascent stars pull out. Moving back to fourth, you roll the skin of window down. The night falls in, blares past you at Balconnen. In another driver's pumped-up wake, notes float like ghosts. You press the radio for voices. A car comes at you, beaming headlights. Dimmed in shady lane, obscured by branches, heavy-armed with leaves, the sky has gone. You will yourself to stay awake to pass the twin abandoned cottages that become a river when the stream that feeds the mill's lake floods. Tell yourself you're almost there before you reach the quarry's gates. Dust white hedges, eerily familiar as you take the final bend in one drawn breath. An echo in the tunnel, then the roundabout, the slowing, going home. Thanks indeed, Enda, um, reading the wonderful You've Been This Way Before. Just a few things to, before we talk about even the, the content. Um, I was struck very much reading it. I mean, it sounds so great the way you read it there, but reading it as a reader from the page, the structure of it, the, the break of the two lines, and sometimes it breaks up almost mid-sentence. So it really focuses you in as a, as a, a reader. And, and the effect of the whole thing seemed to be there's quite an intensity to, po- to the poem. Everything is very vivid in it. I, I was wondering um, if you tell us a little bit about how the poem came about. Well, the poem came about because it, it concerns itself about a drive in mm. a car. And as you know, when you're in a car, there is that intensity. You are concentrating very acutely on everything that's going on around you. And I think that probably affected the line breaks the way a car can just suddenly pull in in front of you or pull out in front of you, even though when I'm on this journey in the poem, there really is only me and the odd other car. Yeah. So I, I think that really is the intensity of being in, you're, you're in your own world in a car. Mm. You, I usually have my music on very loud. Sometimes I sing along with it very badly. But um, it, it's a great place to listen to music or to listen to the radio in a car. So I, I think that affected the structure of the poem, that, yeah. that intensity, that um, womb-like feeling of being enclosed and the line, anything can happen in a car yeah. in a second. So the line breaks, I think, swerve in and out of each other a bit like that. Absolutely. And some lovely imagery in there as well. The whole idea of there's this very internalised world going on in the car. And then in the mirror, you're seeing these planes in the background. Mm. And I, I love that word, tam- tamps. Lovely word. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I was looking it up, but I said, I like that word. Yeah, yeah. It really sounded nice. I'd fit it in. And the whole idea of this 
bigger world going on in the mirror yes. and then the smaller in the world in the car. Yes, and it, because that particular hill, when you get to the, as you come to the top of it, your winds, your, your, especially at night, your, your windscreen mirror suddenly, um, your rear view mirror, I should say, suddenly fills up with a view of the city and all the lights come on and they're like diamonds. And it's quite extraordinary. It happens at a certain point on the hill. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. And one would think on one level, this is a poem very clearly about somebody going home. Yes. And yet, because I say that level of vividness in it, I was saying to myself, is there something specific about this journey or is this, you were just writing about many journeys? It's really that almost there feeling mm. if you've done a long drive. And I, the actual night that the poem came into my head, I was on my way back from the south side. Uh-huh. I was driving back from UCD and I was driving across and there's just a point where you know you've only a couple of miles to go and in some respects they're the hardest miles mm. because you suddenly feel tired, you know, and it's it's that feeling of almost being home. Yeah, yeah. And when you start to see everything familiar and go, oh yes, I'm nearly there now, I'm nearly there now. Yeah, and also it's, it's it comes across as such a nice journey in its own way too because I suppose a lot of us may be living in houses and estates or whatever it is, there, there seems to be the sense of the... The, the rural about this as yes, well. Yes, yes, yeah. it is indeed because where I live, this particular road runs between Lusk and Skerries and I've always loved that road. I mean, some people don't like driving on it. My husband always says, oh, there's always a tractor or something in front of you or somebody on a wobbly bike. But it's a very beautiful road and it, it sweeps out before you and then goes up the hill. Yeah. And it's it's... Where I live, there there are various little towns and there's always a little green bit for a couple of miles between them. And, and they are very rural, you're quite right. Yeah. And it's very hard to remind yourself sometimes that you're actually living in Dublin. But that's one of the joys of living in Dublin is that you're never too far yeah. from that feeling. Even where we're sitting this morning, we're only a couple of miles from the yeah, sea. Yeah, it's and not too far. From Holt and places like that. And I think there are very few cities in the world with like such that. proximity to, to yeah. the rural way of living and to the sea. Yes, yeah. So so given the regularity, if you like, of that particular trip going home, was this a poem that was in your head for a while? I, I must nail this, I must write this down. Or It came s- quickly. Right, right. It came quickly. The first line came quickly. And then it was was in my head for a while. That's exactly what happens. It gets into, a poem will get into my head and a line or a word or an image. Sometimes I park it there. Mm-hmm. And I, but I know I'll get back to it, yeah. or I'll put it in a notebook. But yes, this one played in my head yeah. for quite a while, and then I just sat down and I wrote it yeah. in a big burst. But of course, I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and honed it. But I had the essence of it, I think, from the time I started writing it, yeah. which is good when that happens. Yeah, lovely, lovely attention to detail as well. That the whole idea of the white line, and it was a great line here too, which, which what poetry so often does, it just names something that you. Hitherto, I haven't been able to put an expression on the skin of window pane. Thank you, yeah. Because it is a skin. <laughs> it is, absolutely, yeah. You could, and you can see right through it, but it's, it's keeping you from everything else. But yeah. yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us on If Ever You Go, a Northside Dublin perspective, our exploration of the north side of Dublin through poetry and song. And many thanks to all the guests who featured in this programme. For further information on this series, check out nearfm.ie forward slash if ever you go serious. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Baggett Street and what I was like to know. He was a queer one 
This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.